Thank you, Francis. So, I'm the Matthew part of the team, and uh, I'm going to tag team uh, with Michael as we uh, talk about this book. And I, I just want to start by first of all thanking Francis for the kind introduction, um, and thanking Ian for hosting us here. Um, and I just want to start with how, why we wrote this book. Uh, it was born uh, at the launch of our previous book, which is a book called Philanthropy Capitalism, which is really a book about how philanthropy and social entrepreneurs can solve some of the world's biggest problems. And the book was published uh, basically three days after Lehman Brothers went bust, causing uh, many people to feel that capitalism as we knew it uh, was over and that um, certainly anyone that had any money wasn't going to give it away. Um, and we sat there after our book party uh, thinking that was a lovely party but rather worried by the number of people who said, well it's a lovely book but for another era. Um, and we, we just found ourselves talking and talking about well what actually had gone wrong? Did we think the world had changed? Um, what did we think would happen in a few years' time? What, need, what lessons needed to be learned uh, from what had gone wrong? Um, and actually, what did we think about the ideas in philanthropic capitalism, which you know, we actually concluded were going to be more important than ever, um, which I think has turned out to be the case, uh, indeed. And the book is actually doing very well, and we're finding the ideas are, are getting more traction today than they, they, they ever have done. Um, but out of that, you know, we, we were really left with a sense that um, the problem was not just toxic assets, but toxic ideas, that the ideas that have come to be dominant, including, I would say, within The Economist, um, you know, had much good about them, but also had some, uh, at least in their, how they've become popularly interpreted and how they've been interpreted by policymakers, had come to be a sort of actually lulling us into a false sense of security about how the world was going and that we actually needed to rethink the basic intellectual paradigm governing our views of the role of the markets, the role of finance, the role of government. Um, and so we wrote this book and initially we wrote the book and aimed it at an American market primarily because I was based in America and a publisher offered to publish it in America, so we decided to aim it at the American market, and we had the subtitle, How to Revive Capitalism and Put America Back on Top, a subtitle <laughs> that we've, we've dropped from the British, British version of the book. Um, it was anyway a fairly heroic assumption in the title, but um, we, we aimed at this, this, what we thought would be a very lively American debate, and what we found was that, actually, that America reacted to this crisis by <coughs> Um, in its public debate going to the extremes that you had um, on the left really a sort of fury directed against bankers and, and a lot of conspiracy theory um, the, the book that best captured that was actually not <coughs> by a Brit Simon Johnson who was formerly chief economist at the IMF who wrote this book called 13 Bankers which basically blamed the whole lot on these 13 evil bankers um, who, who had robbed us all um, on the right, there was more of a, a response that it was, you know, the problem had been too much government intervention, um, particularly uh, the, the sense in which the government had made it clear to the financial system that all gains would be private and all losses would be socialised. Um, 
Now, I, again, I, I think there were elements of truth to that, but it was wildly uh, misrepresentative of what had gone on over the previous 25 years to say that the government had been increasing its role um, in the financial system. Um, and so, in the middle were the politicians who were actually doing the reforms in America, and they passed in the end this 2,000 page, page long uh, Dodd-Frank's bill, um, and you know, which is unreadable and not based on any coherent intellectual approach, in my view. It's a, it's a classic example of pork barrel politics and uh, the influence of money. Um, combined with sort of short-term judgments about populist positions to take. So, for example, there's an element of Volcker rule in the, in, the, in the bill, which was really the result of the Democrats losing a Senate by-election uh, and, and needing to show that they were doing something about the banking system. So they wheeled out Paul Volcker for a few weeks, who talked about separating investment banks from uh, commercial banks, much as they're thinking about with the Vickers Commission here. And then, as the process went on, uh, they put Volcker to one side and they kept the name Volcker rule, but what they ultimately passed is nothing like what he wanted. So, classic example of all the populism and the worst aspects of American politics. Uh, then the coalition government um, got itself into office over here, um, and very quickly, um, to our surprise, we, we became convinced that this actually is a government that has the opportunity to be one of the great. Um, redefining governments in, in British history, that um, there's something about these two parties with their very different ideologies being thrown together and realising that they had to do some really hard things um, to change the, the way Britain operates, that actually um, has created an opportunity for us to, I think, rethink the British model and maybe establish Britain again as the intellectual leaders in thinking about the role of the state and the role of the market in the 21st century. Um, and so we decided to rewrite the book pretty thoroughly from top to bottom, directed at the coalition government to say, well, what's the agenda uh, that could sort out Britain, put us back on a more prosperous, sustainable, long-term path, and actually make us a model for the rest of the world? And, and what you'll find in the book is, is our efforts to do that. Um, it's half a book about history, in that we've looked back at previous bubbles, crashes, recessions, depressions, here and in America and around the world to try and draw lessons. There's also a book of, of economic theory. Um, there's a long chapter on why we believe the ideas of economics that became most popular, particularly based on efficient market theory and um, you know, the, the, the omnipotence of central bankers, you know, why, why those ideas became so appealing. Um, and why they, were, why they actually lost touch with what was really going on in academia, where behavioral economics that connected with human psychology and institutional economics that actually looked at incentives and the way institutions actually work in reality, why those ideas were neglected and need to be put back <coughs> into, our, into our policies. Um, before I hand over to Mike, I just want to say we, we think that the coalition is right in feeling that um, the state became too big um, and needs to be made smaller and more effective. Um, we worry about the timing issues from an economic point of view of what they're doing, um, but we can understand the political appeal of doing the painful things and becoming very unpopular early in your election, uh, your period in office, and then maybe recovering 
hopefully if it all works out later on as the election approaches. But where we see the two areas where we think there needs to be greatest debate, one is on the reform of, um, of capitalism, where there are these two separate uh, inquiries. One is the Vickers Commission, and the other is the Long-Termism Commission. Our worry is that a lot of the action and the ideas that have been proposed around the banks in particular um, uh, are actually going to be addressing symptoms rather than causes and that uh, they're actually going to be doing it mostly in a way that history tells us is unlikely to work. Um, and on the other side, um, we think there's a lot of opportunity around the big society idea to maybe take some of the ideas we wrote about in philanthropic capitalism to actually produce a much more effective and more innovative social sector. Um, but our worry is that currently the coalition hasn't really thought through what the big society actually means and is more likely to sort of uh, go for sort of soft things like volunteering and lots of happy anecdotes rather than to really do the hard thinking that we think is needed in that area. Anyway, I'm going to hand over to Mike now to talk a bit about some of those thoughts and then uh, I'll come back a bit later. Mike. Thanks, Matthew. Um, afternoon, I guess you can work out which half of the geo I, I am. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. First of all, to be at the Martin School, which I think is a great institution, and uh, I'm also doing here with Ian, and uh, he and I worked together when we were both bureaucrats uh, <laughs> in the World Bank, I and this government. And to meet Frances, uh, I did my undergraduate studies at St. Peter's College, where her father was the master before my time, um, but his portrait glowered down on me when I ate my breakfast most days, so uh, there was a connection there. Um, what I just want to talk about is uh, looking at the options that are currently on the table for doing something to fix the financial system. Because um, clearly something's got to change, and there will be lots of ideas out there. But our worry in writing this book was that a lot of the ideas out there were treating the symptoms rather than the causes of the problem. And I want to talk about three specific issues. And the first of that is innovation. I mean, after we had the crisis, the media had a great time trying to explain to the public what securitization meant, what CDOs were, and what the finance sector was actually doing. Um, and all the blame fell upon these financial innovations. And we saw um, Adair Turner, the head of the Financial Services Authority, talking about socially useless financial innovation. We had George Soros, the financier, talking about creating a regulatory agency to approve new financial innovations before they'd be allowed onto the market, like dangerous pharmaceutical drugs being regulated by the FDA in the United States. <laughs> so it's a big sort of downer on innovation. Now, I think we've got a, a couple of points to make about that. The first is if you look back through history of all these financial bubbles, so many of them are linked to an innovation. Financial innovations like securitization or financial innovations like paper money. They're also linked to technological innovations from dot-coms back to railways. Um, and I'm sure innovations before then. So what we have to remember is that innovation is strongly linked to bubbles. And that tells us two things. One is that to say that there's no more boom and bust and we can somehow get rid of bubbles is never going to happen. Um, and secondly, that innovation, if you're going to have an innovation, innovative economy, you're going to have to have these bubbles. Just think about it. And innovation, by definition, is something that's new. It's new information coming onto the market that the market is struggling to value. So is it any surprise, therefore, that the market can sometimes struggle to find the right value of that? Throw into that a natural tendency towards overconfidence. Now, the behavioural economists claim to have all this stuff about how we really think about the world and how we tend to be overconfident. But you'll actually find those ideas back in Adam Smith, who talked about humanity's tendency towards overweening conceit. 
or you'll find it in Keynes when he talks about animal spirits. So when new information enters the market, you throw in the irrational exuberance, the overweening conceit, or the animal spirits, it's no surprise that very often our expectations overshoot and we get bubbles. So I think that's one thing to remember. Innovation and bubbles are strongly linked. And there's a danger, therefore, in, in beating up on innovation, because what's going to be the cost to our economy if we try and stifle innovation? So I think that the, the blaming innovation uh, argument and trying to regulate innovation is not the right approach. The question's got to be about how we use innovations better and stop them being so destructive. The second big idea that came in about how to deal with the problems in financial markets had a wonderful intuitive appeal, which is if our banks collapsed because they didn't hold enough capital, if we get them to hold more capital, they will be safer. That's nice and simple, isn't it? Yeah, easy. Um, the problem is if you look at uh, the bank that started it all, Lehman Brothers, before it collapsed in September 2008, it had very high levels of capital, and that didn't protect it. So we're worried about this argument that having more capital is a protection. Others disagree with us. Um, lots of central bankers who, of course, last September passed the Basel III rules increasing the capital requirements on banks. And this was lauded by some of the experts, including the uh, BBC's Robert Peston, who at the time wrote on his blog, if we want to avoid future financial crises that impoverish us all, we've got to pin our hopes on the effectiveness of these new rules. Well, our view is, if we do, God help us. Because um, the problem with these crises is, you know, first, there's two problems with these increasing capital rules. The first of all, of course, is the cost on the economy. And that's one of the problems we're dealing with now. As the banks squirrel away more capital to meet these new rules to hold more capital, that means there's less lending. That's one problem. The second problem is that as banks are told to hold more capital, they often will try and find ways to get around those rules because holding more capital reduces their profitability, which generates innovations like uh, securitization, which was an attempt to get around some of the previous Basel rules on capital. Thirdly, the, all the Basel rules and the arguments about increasing the capital of banks don't answer is that great philosophical question of the ages, how long is a piece of string? Because how much capital is actually going to be enough? And no one can answer that question. So our worry here is that, in a sense, the, the Basel III, the hold more capital argument, is about building a sort of Maginot line defense that will be exceedingly costly and very easily bypassed come the next crisis. The third solution is, as Matthew alluded to, the, the Vickers Commission, uh, the issue the Vickers Commission is looking at, which is separating out different banking functions protecting the public utility, boring basic banking of making payments and collecting savings from the risky casino capitalism of the investment banking. There's various different formulations of that. Now, this again has a, has a great appeal, that we can have a nice safe banking system that isn't threatened by the reckless bit of the banking system, and if the reckless bankers get themselves in trouble, we can just let them collapse, and the ordinary bit of the economy is fine. And again, this suffers from one problem, the same as with capital requirements, which is, of course, it imposes a cost on the cost of capital. If banks can't use their investment banking operations to help manage how they uh, use their capital, we're going to see the cost of credit rising and less credit being available. Secondly, we're not convinced this is actually going to make the system any safer. Because one of the problems you get is that you get leakage between these two bits of the banking system. 
Um, in September of last year, Mervyn King made a rather important speech in New York, um, and he commenting on the Vickers Commission and this idea of separating boring and risky banking, he said, a key challenge is to ensure that maturity transformation does not simply migrate outside the regulated perimeter and end up benefiting from implicit public subsidy. Now, this is a very mild thing and a rather jargony thing to say, which, as a bureaucrat, I understand means he's saying something very important. Um, <laughs> and what he's saying is that you can you could regulate part of you can try and ring fence part of the financial system, but what is likely to happen is that capital, if, those, if that part of the, the boring part of the financial system is offering poor returns to savers or investors, the capital is likely to migrate somewhere else to an unregulated part of the financial system. And if that all that build the capital builds up in that unregulated part and collapses, you may then have to rescue the whole system again. We saw that behaviour with people taking out ice saver accounts in Iceland, which didn't enjoy deposit protection but better interest rates. We also saw this in the, one of the crises we look at in the book, the 1907 crash in the United States, which was all about people moving their money from the regulated, protected national banks to the much less regulated, unprotected banking trusts. A crisis blew up in the banking trusts that dragged the whole financial system down. You couldn't, by creating that split, you didn't actually protect the whole financial system. So that's the worry. Now, one of the advocates of this split between boring and risky banking uh, is another great Oxford economist, John Kay. And John Kay's argument is that, you know, from his experience of working on regulation, he's written some books with Matthew, in fact, um, his lesson is that if you try to regulate an industry, you can either regulate their behavior through banking supervision, and that seems to have been pretty ineffective, or you can regulate industry structure. And industry structure is much more effective. Now, I think that's a very, very powerful argument if you're talking about natural monopolies. But we're not actually talking about natural monopolies here. So if you're thinking in terms of, uh, I don't know, energy supply, you have a problem that with a natural monopoly, the shareholders are incentivized to exploit the natural monopoly to earn excess profits to the detriment of the public. The problem we had in the banking crisis was that actually shareholders, the banks were run in such a way that shareholders got wiped out. There's something different in these two sectors, and I think there's a, there's a danger of a false comparison there. And what that means is there's another option for how you can deal with the financial sector, is that actually it's about changing the incentives and behaviour of the way the banks are run. And we think that's about improving the information and incentives on the people who run banks, and that's got a lot more potential to actually help, uh, help our financial system to be more stable. And I'll get Matthew to say a bit more about what those changes would be. So one of the points that we think tends to get left out of public discussion about the financial system is that <coughs> the bulk of the capital that's being invested in the financial system is the savings of ordinary people uh, like you and I. Um, a lot of it's for our retirement savings. Um, and ultimately, as it's our money, uh, these people who are squandering it and taking massive risks with it are taking uh, our money and, 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 and doing it in ways that we presumably don't want them to be doing it. Uh, and that has a lot, of, a lot of consequences. One is that if you uh, decide that you want 
a set of rules in place to mean that we can only put our money into institutions that are going to take no risks. We're going to have to get used to a lot of that money, our money, earning very low rates of return, uh, which will probably mean that that capital that isn't regulated in that way uh, will be much smaller than is currently being used for investment in riskier activities. And so if we're going to get any kind of growth rate that we would like to see, uh, probably there's going to have to be a lot more leveraged risk-taking by the uh, the risk capital in society, and that will make the system more prone to bubbles and volatility and all sorts of things in that way. Now, I think that's historically why what's tended to happen has been that you've tended to get the public get very bored with not getting high returns and to chase after where you are getting better returns, and therefore you move the subsidy or you move the money out of the protected part of the system into the unprotected part, and then when it goes wrong, the, the unprotected uh, part gets protected because politically no government can afford to see the ordinary people lose their savings and so there's a, there's a sort of I think almost inevitability about that process. Um, a second point we make in the book is that um, there's a currently a sort of nostalgia for getting back to manufacturing and, and, and blaming the city for being too big um, <laughs> which again we think is, is actually um, in, in many ways a mistake. I mean there are some debates to be had, which we get into in the book about, you know, is some financial innovation, is financial innovation always useful, you know, in the long run or not? And you know, we think there are that there was probably a cult of liquidity that people, where people really thought any instrument that created short-term liquidity was a good thing. And I think, with hindsight, we now know that that liquidity disappeared when it was needed most, and therefore. Um, a lot of people who relied upon it found it wasn't there, and, and so maybe that wasn't such a great innovation. But in general, we think that there are going to be huge opportunities in the world as millions and millions of people come into the economic system, uh, where India produces 500 million new fluent English speakers over the next 20 years, where uh, great entrepreneurs are building great businesses, where people who are good at moving capital to where the opportunities are <coughs> are going to be very valuable people to have and they're going to generate a lot of wealth uh, for our country if those people are based here. So um, we're, we're nervous about people just attacking the city because um, it was the most visible incarnation of the bad, bad things that went on uh, during the crash period. Um, so we do think it matters that if we are going to reform finance, we do it in a way that is seriously going to make a difference in a positive way rather than uh, it's going to make us feel better because we feel the need to act and act decisively and show that we're great politicians who know how to clean up a mess. Um, and we think there are two areas in which there's a lot of scope for, for action. Um, to illustrate them, I just want to talk about one interview I did with uh, the head of Lehman Brothers, shortly before his firm went out of business, Dick Fold, who I actually found a, you know, a very, very interesting person to interview. Um, he was probably the first person in the summer of 2007 who explained to me how bad the credit crunch really was, that without the government of America, maybe some other governments coming in and taking a lot of the credit risk, the bad credit out of the system, that there would not be a return to sort of much, the sort of levels of lending that we'd seen. Um, and I'm left concluding that, you know, he clearly passionately cared about his institution that he ran. His own personal myth was very much 
of a person who was a great risk manager that he had saved that bank from bankruptcy before because he really was a good judge of credit risk and a very, very effective manager. So he had a personal myth that was very much to be a cautious person and to be a risk manager. Um, and yet he presided over the greatest bankruptcy in the history of the world. Um, and I think one reason was that he simply didn't have enough information about the risk in the market, that the way the markets had evolved um, left even well-run banks, or banks that could be regarded by their peers as well-run in their risk management, just didn't know what was going on. And I think if you look at some of the economic work that's been done, I think there's a lot of scope for saying well, we can provide information to, mark, to players in the market that gives them a much better sense of, of their risk and that there, there, there is a need for a lot of energy to be directed at finding ways to, in, to create better informed market players so that insofar as they are <coughs> interested in their own long-term viability, they um, are able to play in a, a, a much more informed marketplace. Um, we also think that, to some extent, there'd been this confidence that those institutions wouldn't be able to fail, <coughs> that because they were so well run that they would never face bankruptcy. And that meant that no one had given much thought to uh, the process by which they would fail if they did. And there's some very good ideas coming out of behavioural economics around um, changing the incentive structures, for example, by creating certain securities that convert from uh, debt into equity in the event of a market <coughs> collapse. Um, and so investors know what, what's going to happen, how much of a haircut they're going to have to take and so forth in the event of a disaster. And also notions like living wills, as they've been known, whereby you almost have a pre-planned bankruptcy process that uh, is well known to other market participants so that they can see what will happen and prepare for it in the event of a, of a crisis. We think those sorts of ideas are much more promising lines for the Vickers Commission to go down um, than uh, these breakup ideas, which I don't think really would make any difference at all. Lehman Brothers, for example, um, you know, wasn't a uh, combined investment bank, commercial bank. It was just an investment bank. It's, it was probably below the size at which it would be broken up by any of the proposals that I've seen to make banks smaller. Um, and ironically, everyone talks about creating very long-term incentive schemes to pay top management. Um, Lehman Brothers is regarded as having had the model long-term uh, executive pay plan with very high emphasis on locked-up equity holdings for top management. And so all those things were in place that are being talked about now, and uh, none of them worked in that case. Now, when I went to interview Dick Fold, I talked to a lot of people beforehand, institutional investors and so forth, who said, um, you know, we have all sorts of questions about Lehman Brothers. None of them mentioned what I think turned out to be the most important failure with that bank, which was that its board of directors was consistently year after year rated D by the major corporate governance activist monitoring organization, the Corporate Library, uh, which pointed out that, among other things, there was a, an octogenarian actress whose uh, previous role had been in Caddyshack, and there was a Broadway impresario, and there was probably no one on that board that was really able to ask serious questions about finance or challenge 
uh, Mr. Foles' judgment. Um, here was a man whose nickname was the Gorilla, um, and who had been publicly, uh, had been actually been involved in a fight with a parent of uh, a son, a child on his son's ice hockey team in a public brawl in the park. Um, this was an intimidating man. He's surrounded by yes people, and. It didn't occur to me to ask him whether that was a thing that we should worry about. It didn't occur to the institutional investors to mention it to me as a risk factor in that bank. It didn't occur to any of the firms that did business with Lehman Brothers to, to flag this up as a risk factor. It didn't occur to the regulators to flag this up as a risk factor. In fact, it was celebrated. Everyone loved the fact the man was called the gorilla. I mean, it was a great thing. You know, we, As a journalist, I came away thinking, yeah, I've had this great interview with the gorilla. I landed a few blows and you know you felt good about it and so I think it, 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 in many ways what this crisis has illustrated is a failure of corporate governance that there should have been people on that board who recognized that this was a man with a tremendous hubris um, who wasn't listening to people around him it turns out and um, wasn't really in touch in the way that he thought he was and then you look at why this corporate governance failed and it turns out the institutional investors are by and large, motivated and incentivized in a very short-term way. They are basically trying to beat the market over a short period of time. Um, very few of them take much interest in who's on the board. Um, they don't vote their shares in a systematic way. They don't take any attempt to actually make any attempt to consult with the people whose money is actually being invested, uh, for you and I, um, about how they're investing the money and, wh and whether, or, or think in any way about whether the companies they're investing in our building sort of world that we would like to retire into and spend that money that they've been investing. And you know, my view is that if you really want to see the underlying cause, it is that, it is that failure of the institutions we have created to invest our money, uh, actually uh, to, to invest that money in a way that's thoughtful at all. And, and we talk about a number of proposals in the book, including changing the law on fiduciary responsibility which currently allows you to say you've done a good job simply by diversifying your portfolio of shares, to actually include a responsibility to vote your shares thoughtfully um, and to um, take into account uh, the, the longer term, the, the implications for future shareholders as well as today's shareholders. Um, we think there are a variety of other ideas um, that Mike will talk about as well, um, but they're all there in the book. We think this is an area though where we would love to see the long-termism part of, of the review process really uh, coming up with some major changes. There are some encouraging things going on. There's a new stewardship code that's being talked about in the city. Um, and I think one of the challenges we'd like to put to the government is that they actually make sure that that's enforced uh, properly um, and maybe goes beyond being voluntary. But there's a big agenda here that's largely ignored by the political process at the moment and that we think is very, very high priority. Anyway, Mike, over well, to you. Um, Something that's not actually being ignored by the political process, of course, is the big society. Uh, everyone's getting very excited about it. Twitter was ablaze yesterday about the big society, around the exciting story that the uh, government's advisor on the big society, Lord Way, was now going to be volunteering two days a week rather than three. I mean, if this is the level of debate we have about the big society, that tells us something about the problem we have with the idea. And I think the problem lies on two sides. One is it does seem that a lot of the left has taken the view that the big society is there to be ridiculed and as a way of 
attacking the government, using it as a cover for the cuts, and therefore defending uh, public services. Um, and I think there's, there's a very important argument, debate to be had about the impact of the cuts, particularly on the poorest in our society. On the other hand, I think you know, we've got to accept that government's got to change. I mean, I worked in government for 12 years, and you know, what I saw in that time was that public spending could do a lot of good, but government is always going to be constrained in how much it can innovate, how much it can take risks, how much it can think long term. And in a sense, the boom years before the crash, as well as Gordon Brown's willingness to keep upping public expenditure, meant that we had a kind of bubble in government as much as we had a bubble in the financial markets. So I think the danger of a denial of the need to change, I think it seems to be sitting on the left in its critique of the big society. On the right, however, I fear that there's a, some of the philosophers of the big society have really led it in a negative direction. And I'm thinking particularly of Philip Blonde and his redatory third wayism, which in an attempt to find something that isn't Thatcherism, has ended up with this rather strange philosophy that hates government, but hate, almost hates markets more. And as a result, the big society has been pushed into a bunch of areas like volunteering, uh, mutual societies, and I think quite small aspects of the transformation our society needs, rather than the big changes. Um, I mean, you might be surprised that I'm saying that, because you know, philanthropy is part of the big society agenda, and we wrote a book called Philanthropic Capitalism, How Giving Can Save the World. But one of the big arguments we make in that book is that if you look at the amount of philanthropic capital available, it's never going to be able to substitute for public expenditure. The great capacity of philanthropy is to do high leverage activities that can help either government or the private sector to scale up that solution. The big pools of capital are going to be in government or the private sector, not on philanthropy. Philanthropy's key role is catalytic. And this was something that Bill Gates said to us when we interviewed him for the book. You know, here's the, the man who runs the biggest foundation in the history of the world, and he describes it as a tiny, tiny organization. And he's saying that compared to the problems he's trying to solve and the amounts of public and private money he's trying to leverage. So it feels sometimes the big society is about, oh, philanthropy will fill the gap of public services, mm -hmm. rather than saying, how do we actually change the way we solve problems where philanthropy and giving and other mechanisms can help to bring those big changes? And that's where we see the really big problem with the big society has been its absolute failure to create any vision for its relationship with business. I mean, as far as we can tell, the, the main strategy seems to be to extract uh, money out of, the, out of the city in penance for its sins in order to set up a few initiatives. We call this sort of the Dengel strategy against the city. Um, and that's a real worry. That's not about asking the city to change and asking the city to be actually a positive contributor to our society. And exactly as Matthew was talking earlier about you know, longer-term thinking in finance, if we've got that longer-term thinking in finance, then finance can actually think about how we can be a positive player in finding solutions to social problems and finding for-profit solutions. There are some really exciting innovations taking place in this area, one of which, which was actually uh, created under the, the Brown government, was something called the Social Impact Bond which raises money from the private capital markets to invest in uh, rehabilitating offenders in prison. And if the program is successful, the government pays the investors back. And this is a very smart scheme because it helps government spending to be more effective, it helps solutions to get to scale, and uses private capital to achieve that result. 
And I think there are lots of areas where these kind of mechanisms could be used. And we worry that the government isn't thinking in terms of that real partnership with the city. It's just seeing it's being let punitively attacking the city. So that's one area where we think that the big society vision is too narrow and isn't thinking about business enough. The other one is, if the big society vision is about citizen activism, does it have to all be about cleaning up dog mess in our parks? Yeah? There's a really important part of citizen activism, which again is linked to this corporate governance, long-term agenda that we talked about, which is getting citizens to start using their voice about how their capital is used. Over the last 25 years, we've become incredibly smart consumers, getting involved in a whole range of different campaigns from fair trade to ethical fisheries or whatever. And what that's done is had a huge impact in changing business attitudes. Now, imagine if we could take all that consumer activism and apply, apply it to how our capital is used. I mean, how many people ask themselves when they see a statement from their pension fund, anything apart from how much am I going to get? Yeah? But why aren't we asking questions about how our pension fund, life insurance capital is being invested? A few years ago, the United Nations launched these principles for responsible investment. You know, why aren't we asking whether our pension funds are invested in those things and through the, those principles? Why aren't we asking if our pension fund is signing up to this new stewardship code? And this is what we in the book sort of call a new citizen capitalism, that if we actually are active ourselves, then we can have a say in shaping the kind of capitalism that we have. As Matthew said, it's kind of ironic that you know, Britain, we're kind of used to having major governments that bring big change, coming in on a big public popular mandate and having a big plan and agenda for change. That's not true for this government. It's crept over the finishing line in a coalition. It's got plenty of disputes and disagreements between its members. But we think that actually if we can take that opportunity to think afresh, break away from some of the traditional left and right debates and come up with some of the new thinking that's needed, and so using some of the ideas in the book, then there's a chance that the Cameron government could be as famous for being a real game changer as much as the Liberal government of 1906, the Labour government of 1945, or the Conservative government of 1979. Thank you. Thank you.